Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode we're going to read chapters 9 through 10 and in the previous episode we read chapters 7 through 8 and essentially it was more, uh, this time it was on Percy and Annabeth's uh, point of view as a journey through Tartarus and let me say it was quite a journey. So if you haven't checked that out I highly recommend that you go check that episode out before you come to this one but they definitely, their first few hours days um it's just it's going really rough for them so honestly i applaud them for just being able to get it get through even across the river or even just being able to survive this entire thing so i think that just takes a lot of willpower and i think that the fact that they have each other just makes it a little bit easier to bear with but yeah so we ended up on percy and annabeth seeing uh their longtime enemy kelly uh, to which uh, when Percy, I believe, had met Kelly at, um, I believe when they went to go meet Nico and Bianca at their school, they also met Kelly, who was one of the cheerleaders, and that turned into a whole fiasco, but they saw her again. She didn't see them yet, but they're gonna follow her to hopefully reach the doors of death. So we're going to see how the rest of this chapter is going to go as we read now from the other group's point of view, from Leo's point of view, as we read chapter 9, Leo. Leo spent the night wrestling with a 40-foot-tall Athena. Ever since they brought the statue aboard, Leo had been obsessed with figuring out how it worked. He was sure it had primo powers. There had to be a secret switch or a pressure plate or something. He was supposed to be sleeping, but he just couldn't. He spent hours crawling over the statue, which took up most of the lower deck. Athena's feet stuck into sick bay, so you had to squeeze past your ivory toes if you wanted some Advil. Her body ran the length of the port corridor, her outstretched hand jutting into the engine room, offering the life-size figure of Nike that stood in her palm, like, Here, have some victory! Athena's serene face took up most of the aft Pegasus stables, which were, fortunately, unoccupied. If Leo were a magic horse, he wouldn't have wanted to live in a stall with an oversized goddess of wisdom staring at him. The statue was wedged tight in the corridor, so Leo had to climb over the top and wriggle under her limbs, searching for levers and buttons. As usual, he found nothing. He'd done some research on the statue. He knew it was made from a hollow wooden frame covered in ivory and gold, which explained why it was so light. It was in pretty good shape, considering it was more than 2,000 years old, had been pillaged from Athens, toted to Rome, and secretly stored in a spider's cavern for most of the past two millennia. Magic must have kept it intact, Leo figured, combined with really good craftsmanship. Annabeth had said, well, he tried not to think about Annabeth. He still felt guilty about her and Percy falling into Tartarus. Leo knew it was his fault. He should have gotten everyone safely on board the Argo II before he started securing the statue. He should have realized the cavern floor wasn't stable. Still, moping around wasn't going to get Aunt Percy and Annabeth back. He had to concentrate on fixing the problems he could fix. Anyway, Annabeth had said the statue was the key to defeating Gaia. It could heal the rift between Greek and Roman demigods. Leo figured there had to be more to it than just symbolism. Maybe Athena's eyes shot lasers, or the snake behind her shield could spit poison. Or maybe the smaller figure of Nike came to life and busted out some ninja moves. Leo could think of 
all kinds of fun things the statue might do if he had designed it. But the more he examined it, the more frustrated he got. The Athena Parthenos radiated magic. Even he could feel that. But it didn't seem to do anything except look impressive. The ship careened to one side, taking evasive maneuvers. Leo resisted the urge to run to the helm. Jason, Piper, and Frank were on duty with Hazel now. They could handle whatever was going on. Besides, Hazel had insisted on taking the wheel to guide them through the secret pass that the magic goddess had told her about. Leo hoped Hazel was right about the long detour north. He didn't trust this Hecate lady, Hecate lady. He didn't see why such a creepy goddess would suddenly decide to be helpful. Of course, he didn't trust magic in general. That's why he was having so much trouble with the Athena Parthenos. It had no moving parts. Whatever it did, it apparently operated on pure sorcery. And Leo didn't appreciate that. He wanted it to make sense, like a machine. Finally, he got too exhausted to think straight. He curled up with a blanket in the engine room and listened to the soothing hum of the generators. Buford, the mechanical table, sat in the corner on sleep mode, making little steamy snores. Leo liked his quarters okay, but he felt safest here in the heart of the ship, in a room filled with mechanisms he knew how to control. Besides, maybe if he spent more time close to the Athena Parthenos, he would eventually soak in its secrets. It's your me, big lady, he murmured as he pulled a blanket up to his chin. You're going to cooperate eventually. He closed his eyes and slept. Unfortunately, that meant dreams. He was running for his life through his mother's old workshop, where she died in a fire when Leo was eight. He wasn't sure what was chasing him, but he sensed it closing fast. Something large and dark and full of hate. He stumbled into workbenches, knocked over toolboxes, tripped on electrical cords. He spotted the exit and sprinted toward it, but a figure loomed in front of him. A woman in robes of dry, swirling earth. Her earth, her face, covered in a veil of dust. Where are you going, little hero? Gaia asked. Stay and meet my favorite son. Leo darted to the left, but the earth goddess's laughter followed him. (laughs) The night your mother died, I warned you. I said the fates would not allow me to kill you then. But now, you have chosen your path. Your death is near, Leo Valdez. He ran into a drafting table his mother's old workstation. The wall behind it was decorated with Leo's crayon drawings. He sobbed in desperation and turned, but the thing pursuing him now stood in his path, a colossal being wrapped in shadows, its shape vaguely humanoid, its head almost scrapping, scraping the ceiling 20 feet above. Leo's hands burst into flame. He blasted the giant, but the darkness consumed his fire. Leo reached for his tool belt. The pockets were sewn shut. He tried to speak, to say anything that would save his life, but he couldn't make a sound, as if the air had been stolen from his lungs. My son will not allow any fires tonight, Gaia said from the depths of the warehouse. He is the void that consumes all magic, the cold that consumes all fire, the silence that consumes all speech. Leo wanted to shout, and I'm the dude that's all out of here. His voice didn't work, 
so he used his feet. He dashed to the right, ducking under the shadowy giant's grasping hands, and burst through the nearest doorway. Suddenly, he found himself at Camp Half-Blood, except the camp was in ruins. The cabins were charred husks, burned fields smoldered in the moonlight. The dining pavilion had collapsed into a pile of white rubble, and the big house was on fire, its windows glowing like demon eyes. Leo kept running. Sure, the shadow giant was still behind him. He wove around the bodies of Greek and Roman demigods. He wanted to check if they were alive. He wanted to help them, but somehow he knew he was running out of time. He jogged toward the only living people he saw, a group of Romans standing at the volleyball pit. Two centurions leaned casually on their javelins, chatting with a tall, skinny, blonde guy in a purple toga. Leo stumbled. It was that freak Octavian, the augur from Camp Jupiter. He was always screaming for war. Octavian turned to face him, but he seemed to be in a trance. His features were slack, his eyes closed. When he spoke, it was in Gaia's voice. This cannot be prevented. The Romans move east from New York. They advance on your camp, and nothing can slow them down. Leo was tempted to punch Octavian in the face. Instead, he kept running. He climbed Half-Blood Hill at the summit lightning had splintered the giant pine tree. He faltered to a stop. The back of the hill was shorn away. Beyond it, the entire world was gone. Leo saw nothing but clouds far below, a rolling silver car- carpet under the dark sky. A sharp voice said, Well? Leo flinched. At the shattered pine tree, a woman knelt at the cave entrance that had cracked open between the tree's roots. The woman was in Gaia. She looked more like a living Athena Parthenos, with the same golden robes and bare ivory arms. When she rose, Leo almost stumbled off the edge of the world. Her face was regally beautiful, with high cheekbones, large dark eyes, and braided licorice-colored hair piled in a fancy Greek hairdo, set with a spiral of emeralds and diamonds so that it reminded Leo of a Christmas tree. Her expression radiated pure hatred. Her lip curled, her nose wrinkled. The tinker's god's child, she sneered. You are no threat, but I suppose my vengeance must start somewhere. Make your choice. Leo tried to speak, but he was about to crawl out of his skin with panic. Between this hate queen and the giant chasing him, he had no idea what to do. He'll be here soon, the woman warned. My dark friend will not give you the luxury of a choice. It's the cliff or the cave, boy. Suddenly, Leo understood what she meant. He was cornered. He could jump off the cliff, but that was suicide. Even if there was land under those clouds, he would die in the fall. Or maybe he would just keep falling forever. But the cave. He stared at the dark opening between the tree roots. It smelled of rot and death. He heard bodily bodies shuffling inside, voices whispering in the shadows. The cave was the home of the dead. If he went down there, he would never come back. Yes, the woman said. Around her neck hung a strange bronze and emerald pendant, like a circular labyrinth. Her eyes were so angry, Leo finally understood why mad was a word for crazy. This lady had been driven nuts by hatred. The house of Hades awaits. You'll be the first puny rodent to die in my maze. You have only one chance to escape, Leo Valdez. Take it. She gestured toward the cliff. You're bonkers, 
you managed. That was the wrong thing to say. She seized his wrist. Perhaps I should kill you now, before my dark friend arrives. Steps shook the hillside. The giant was coming, wrapped in shadows, huge and heavy and bent on murder. Have you heard of dying in a dream, boy? The woman asked. It is possible. At the hands of a sorceress, Leo's arms started to smoke. The woman's touch was acid. He tried to free himself, but her grip was like steel. He opened his mouth to scream. The massive shape of the giant loomed over him, obscured by layers of black smoke. The giant raised his fist, and a voice cut through the dream. Leo! Jason was shaking his shoulder. Hey, man! Why are you hugging Nike? Leo's eyes fluttered open. His arms were wrapped around the human-sized statue in Athena's hand. He must have been thrashing in his sleep. He clung to the victory goddess like he used to cling to his pillow when he had nightmares as a kid. Man, that had been so embarrassing in the foster homes. He disentangled himself and sat up, rubbing his face. Ugh, nothing, he muttered. We were just cuddling. Uh, um, what's going on? Jason didn't tease him. That's one thing Leo appreciated about his friend. Jason's ice-blue eyes were level and serious. The little scar in his mouth twitched like it always did when he had bad news to share. We made it through the mountains, he said. We're almost to Bologna. You should join us in the mess hall. Nico has new information. And that's the end of chapter 19. Well, that certainly was a very, very fascinating chapter. I think it's a very clear consensus that whenever a demigod sleeps, they should not expect a happy dream. That That is zero to none. But that's the fascinating part when it comes to these dreams, at least for demigods, right? Because... When you look at Percy, right, whenever he's having these dreams, at least in the previous books, he had clairvoyance, which was probably one of the coolest things anybody could have. He could secretly spy on anybody. Well, it it might not have been his own choice, but he could spy on anybody without having them notice them. Unless it was a god or a huge titan like Kronos, nobody else ever noticed Percy watching them in his dreams, which is insane because... That type of skill is, it's annoying. It's practically horrifying just seeing what a monster might be planning to do with you or your or your group of friends. It's just, it's crazy. So I think that these demigods, they have a lot of power, but it's a lot of pressure for them to be able to take this power. They're just teens. They're probably... They're 13, 16, 13 to 16 years old. And usually someone, you know, their age doesn't take on this much pressure. So it's just really, I think, just watching them go through these types of dreams and nightmares and just not even be able to sleep peacefully. It's just, it's upsetting sometimes just to see it. But I think that after a while, when you get trained to it, that's when your real true strength comes in. So I think that, honestly, these demigods are just, you know, they should be applauded for being able to just, being able to handle those dreams, being able to wake up every day thinking that a monster may attack them, never being able to live a normal, peaceful life, or at least a bit more peaceful. But, yeah. I think that this chapter showed us another, like, aspect to 
what it really comes with being a demigod and whether it's really worth being one so yeah uh after the break we're gonna read chapter 10 and then we're gonna finish it off with some q a and some questions so see you then And we're back from the ads, and now we're going to read chapter 10, Leo. Leo had designed the mess hall's walls to show real-time scenes from Camp Half-Blood. At first, he had thought that was a pretty awesome idea. Now, he wasn't so sure. The scenes from back home, the campfire sing-alongs, dinners at the pavilion, volleyball games outside the big house, just seemed to make his friends sad. The farther they got from Long Island, the worse it got. The time zones kept changing, making Leo feel the distance every time he looked at the walls. Here in Italy, the sun had just come up. Back at Camp Half-Blood, it was the middle of the night. Torches sputtered at the cabin doorways. Moonlight glittered on the ways of Long Island Sound. The beach was covered in footprints as of a big crowd had just left. With a start, Leo realized that yesterday, last night, whatever, had been the 4th of July. They missed Camp Half-Blood's annual party at the beach with awesome fireworks prepared by Leo's siblings in Cabin 9. He decided not to mention that to the crew, but he hoped their buddies back home had had a good celebration. They needed something to keep their spirits up to. He remembered the images he'd seen in his dream. The camp in ruins, littered with bodies, Octavian standing at the volleyball pit, casually talking in Gaia's voice. He stared down at his eggs and bacon. He wished he could turn off the wall videos. So, Jason said, now that we're here, he sat at the head of the table, kind of by default. Since they lost Annabeth, Jason had done his best to act as a group leader. Having been Praetor back at Camp Jupiter, he was probably used to that. But Leo could tell his friend was stressed. His eyes were more sunken than usual. His blonde hair was uncharacteristically messy, like he'd forgotten to comb it. Leo glanced at the others around the table. Hazel was bleary-eyed, too. But of course, she'd been up all night guiding the ship through the mountains. Her curly cinnamon-colored hair was tied back in a bandana, which gave her a commando look that Leo found kind of hot. And then immediately felt guilty about. Next to her sat her boyfriend, Frank Zank, dressed in black workout pants, and a Roman tourist teacher that said, Ciao! Was that even a word? Frank's old centurion badge was pinned to his shirt, despite the fact that the demigods of the Argo II were now public enemies of number 1 through 7 back at Camp Jupiter. His grim expression just reinforced his unfortunate resemblance to a sumo wrestler. Then there was Hazel's half-brother, Nico D'Angelo. Dang, that kid gave Leo the freaky deekies. He sat back in his leather aviator jacket, his black t-shirt and jeans, that wicked silver skull ring on his finger, and the Stygian sword on his side. His, tuss, his tufts of black hair stuck up in curls like baby bat wings. His eyes were sad and kind of empty, as if he'd stared into the depths of Tartarus, which he had. The only absent demigod was Piper, who was taking her turn at the helm with Coach Hedge, their satyr chaperone. Leo wished Piper was here. She had a way of calming things down with that Aphrodite charm of hers. After his dreams last night, Leo could use some calm. On the other hand, it was probably good she was above deck chaperoning their chap cha- chaperone. Now that they were in the ancient lands, they had to constantly be on guard. Leo was nervous about letting Coach Hedge fly solo. The satyr was a little trigger-happy, and the helm had plenty of bright, dangerous buttons that could cause the picturesque Italian villages below them to go boom. Leo had zoned out, so totally he didn't really 
realized that Jason was still talking. The House of Hades, he was saying. Nico? Nico sat forward. I communed with the dead last night. He just tossed that line out there like he was just saying he got a text from a buddy. I was able to learn more about what we'll face, Nico continued. In ancient times, the House of Hades was a major site for Greek pilgrims. They would come to speak with the dead and honor their ancestors. Leah frowned. Sounds like Dia de los Muertos. My Aunt Rosa took that stuff seriously. He remembered being dragged by her to the local cemetery in Houston, where they clean up their relatives' grave sites and put off offerings of lemonade, cookies, and fresh marigolds. Aunt Rosa would force Leo to stay for a picnic as if hanging out with dead people were good for his appetite. Friend grunted. Oh, Chinese have that too. Ancestor worship, sweeping the graves in the springtime. He glanced at Leo. Your Aunt Rosa would have gone along with my grandmother. Leo had a terrifying image of his Aunt Rosa and some old Chinese woman in wrestler's outfits wailing on each other with spiked clubs. Yeah, Leo said. I'm sure they would have been best buds. Nico cleared his throat. A lot of cultures have seasonal traditions to honor the dead, but the House of Hades was open year-round. Pilgrims could actually speak to the ghosts. In Greek, the place was called Necromation, the Oracle of Death. You'd work your way through different levels of tunnels, leaving offerings and drinking special potions. Special potions, Leo muttered. Yum. Jason flashed him a look like, dude, enough. Nico, go on. The pilgrims believed that each level of the temple brought you closer to the underworld until the dead would appear before you. If they were pleased with your offerings, they would answer your questions, maybe even tell you the future. Frank tapped his mug of hot chocolate. And if the spirits weren't pleased? Some pilgrims found nothing, Nico said. Some went insane or died after leaving the temple. Others lost their way in the tunnels and were never seen again. The point is, Jason said, Nico's found some information that might help us. Yeah, Nico didn't sound very enthusiastic. The ghost I spoke to last night, he was a former priest of he Hecate. He confirmed what the goddess told Hazel yesterday at the crossroads. In the first war with the giants, Hecate fought for the gods. She slew one of the giants, one who had been designed as the anti-Hecate, a guy named Clidius. Dark dude, Leo guessed, wrapped in shadows. Hazel turned toward him, her gold eyes narrowing. Leo, how did you know that? Eh, kind of had a dream. No one looked surprised. Most demigods had vivid nightmares about what was, gonna, what was going on in the world. His friends played, paid close attention as Leo explained. Try not to look at the wall images of Camp Half-Blood as he described the place in ruins. He told him about the dark giant and the strange woman on Half-Blood Hill offering him a multiple-choice death. Jason pushed away his plate of pancakes. So the giant is Clidius. So I suppose he'll be waiting for us guarding the doors of death. Frank rolled up one of the pancakes and started munching. Not a guy to let impending death stand in the way of a hearty breakfast. And the woman in Leo's dream? She's m my problem. Leah Hazel passed a diamond between her fingers and a slate of hand. Hecate mentioned a form formidable enemy in the House of Hades. A witch who couldn't be defeated except by me. Using magic. Do you know magic? Leo asked. Not yet. Ah, he tried to think of something hopeful to say, but he recalled the angry woman's eyes. The way her steely grip made his skin smoke. Any idea who she is? <sighs> Hazel shook her head. Only that... She glanced at Nico, and some sort of silent argument happened between them. 
Leo got the feeling that the two of them had had private conversations about the House of Hades and that they weren't sharing all the details. Only that she won't be easy to defeat. But there is some good news, Nico said. The ghost I talked to explained how Hecate defeated Clytius in the first war. She used her torches to set his hair on fire. He burned to death. In other words, fire is his weakness. Everybody looked at Leo. Oh, he said. Okay. Jason nodded encouragingly, like this was great news. Like he expected Leo to walk up to a towering mass of darkness, shoot a few foul fireballs, and solve all their problems. Leo didn't want to bring him down, but he could still hear Gaia's voice. He is a void that consumes all magic. The cold that consumes all fire. The silence that consumes all speech. Leo was pretty sure it would take more than a few matches to set that giant ablaze. It's a good lead, Jason insisted. At least we know how to kill the giant. And this sorceress... Well, if Hecate believes Hazel can defeat her, then so do I. Hazel dropped her eyes. Now we just have to reach the House of Hades, battle our way through Gaia's forces, plus a bunch of ghosts, Nico added grimly. The spirits in that temple may not be friendly. And find the doors of death, Hazel continued, assuming we can somehow arrive at the same time as Percy and Annabeth and rescue them. Frank swallowed a bite of a pancake. We have to. We can do it. We have to. Leo admired the big guy's optimism. He wished he shared it. So, with this detour, Leo said, I'm estimating four or five days to arrive at Epirus, assuming no delays for, you know, monster attacks and stuff. Jason smiled sourly. Yeah, those never happen. Leo looked at Hazel. Hegarty told you that Gaia was planning her big wake-up party on August 1st, right? The feast of whatever? Spes, Hazel said the goddess of hope. Jason turned his fork. Theoretically, that leaves us enough time. It's only July 5th. We should be able to close the doors of death, then find the giant's HQ and stop them from waking Gaia before August 1st. Theoretically, Hazel agreed, but I'd still like to know how we make her through the House of Hades without going insane or dying. Nobody volunteered any ideas. Frank set down his pancake roll like it suddenly didn't taste so good. It's July 5th. Oh, jeez, I hadn't even thought of that. Hey, man, it's cool, Leo said. You're Canadian, right? I didn't expect you to get me an Independence Day present or anything. Uh, Unless you wanted to. It's not that. My grandmother. She always told me that seven was an unlucky number. It was a ghost number. She didn't like it when I told her there'd be seven demigods on her quest, and July is the seventh month. Yeah, but... Leo tapped his fingers nervously on the table. He realized he was doing the Morse code for I love you, the way he used to do it with his mom, which would have been pretty embarrassing if his friends understood Morse code. But that's just coincidence, right? Frank's expression didn't reassure him. Back in China, Frank said, in the olden days, people got called a seven-month to ghost month. That's when the spirit world and the human world were closest. The living and dead could go back and forth. Tell me it's a coincidence we're searching for the doors of death during the ghost month. No one spoke. Leo wanted to think that an old Chinese belief couldn't have anything to do with the Romans and Greeks. Totally different, right? But Frank's existence was proof that the cultures were tied together. The Zhang family went all the way back to ancient Greece. They found their way through Roman China and finally to Canada. Also, Leo kept thinking about his meeting with the revenge goddess Nemesis at the Great Salt Lake. Nemesis had called him the Seventh Wheel. The odd man out of the quest. She didn't mean seventh as in ghost. 
Did she? Jason pressed his hands against the arms of his chair. Let's focus on the things we can deal with. We're getting close to Bologna. Maybe we'll get more answers once we find these dwarves, said Hecate. The ship lurched as if it had hit an iceberg. Leo's breakfast plate slid across the table. Nico fell backward out of his chair and banged his head against the sideboard. He collapsed on the floor with a dozen magic goblets and platters crashing down on top of him. Nico! Hazel ran to help him. What? Frank tried to stand, but the ship pitched in the other direction. He stumbled into the table and went face first into the Leo's plate of scrambled eggs. Look! Jason pointed at the walls. The images of Camp Haplo were flickering and changing. Not possible, Leo murmured. No way those enchan- enchantments could show anything other than seeds from camp. But suddenly a huge distorted face filled the entire port side wall. Crooked yellow teeth, a scraggly yet red beard, a warty nose, and two mismatched eyes. One much larger than the other, and higher than the other. The face seemed to be trying to eat its way into the room. The other walls flickered, showing scenes from above deck. Piper stood at the helm, but something was wrong. From the shoulders down, she was wrapped in duct tape, her mouth gagged, and her legs bound to the control console. At the main mast, Coaches was similarly bound and gagged, while a bizarre-looking creature, sort of gnome-chimpanzee combo with poor fashion sense, danced around him, doing the coach's hair in tiny pigtails with pink rubber bands. On the port side wall, the huge, ugly face receded so that Leo could see the entire creature. Another gnome chimp. And even crazier clothes. This one began leaping around the deck, stuffing things in a burlap bag. Piper's dagger, Leo's Wii controllers, then he pried the Archimedes sphere out of the command console. No! Leo yelled. Ugh. Nico groaned from the floor. Piper! Jason cried. Monkey? Frank yelled. Not monkeys, Hazel said, grumbled. I think those are dwarves. Stealing my stuff! Leo yelled, and he ran for the stairs. And that's the end of chapter 10. Uh, how could it be a sea journey if it weren't for some type of pirates? So now we've got a fascinating band of pirates now ready to steal whatever they want, want on the boat. So this is definitely going to be that setback that Leo was talking about, which is probably going to extend theirs, their time period from four to five days to maybe six or seven days so we'll see how long it takes for them to defeat these dwarves and and if they're hopefully able to recover everything but overall that was a extremely uh, fascinating chapter and i think that we still we we started learning a little bit more deeper meaning into this chapter especially that number seven it's really bringing in the culture and everything within it or like it's meshing those different cultures together and especially with the fact of you know us knowing that you know with the whole number seven story of you know this is the seventh month there's seven demigods everything maybe it was already predetermined that this was supposed to happen or maybe this has some deeper meaning towards why there are seven demigods why leo may be the seventh wheel may why is this all happening in july the seventh month of the year We'll have to see as we continue to read this in this book and see where the course of the seven, number seven, takes us. So that's it regarding the chapters. And now we're going to do some shout outs and question answers once again. If I miss your name, do please let me know in the next episode and I will try my best to shout you out. So let's go ahead with the shout outs. LRV, 
me again, Talitha, Adam Lanza, and Cupcake Kid 9 Once again, if I missed any of your names or you would like a shout-out, please do let me know, and I'll try my best to get you in the next episode. Now let's move on to the questions. Would you rather fight Hera, Kronos, Gaia, or the Titan Twins? Honestly, I think I would probably do... I would probably say the Titan Twins in terms of effectiveness and how long it would take me for me to be able to defeat them because Hera is a goddess, so that would be extremely hard. Kronos is a huge Titan, almost a god as well, so that would probably be near to impossible as well. And Gaia is a goddess as well, so... I feel that those three would be extremely, extremely hard in terms of effectiveness in, you know, if we were able to beat them at all. So I feel like I would take the Titan Twins on in order to maybe have a chance at beating them. And next question is, what is my favorite thing that Percy and Annabeth said to each other? Hmm. Well, I don't think I exactly remember what they said to each other, but I do know that this scene was one of my favorites where... Um, where Annabeth is holding the sky and Percy actually takes it off of his shoulders, I believe. Or it might have been the other way around. But anyway, I think that that scene was probably one of the most crucial scenes that we see in their relationship and how it's truly starting to form. And I think that whole scene with Atlas and everything was just... That was just the... That was the punch. That was... That was the... That was the punch needed to hit the button for this relationship to start going on its tracks and i think that that's what's really was a critical step in creating what percy and annabeth have now so yeah um who is my favorite titan hmm that's hmm. um probably I would have to say, hmm, that's a hard one, that's a hard one, I'd probably say the Titan Twins, honestly, I think that there was some comedy in there, you know, how I love comedy, and I think that I just, I think, it was a good, it was a good, uh, see, it was, while we saw them together, while we saw those Titan Twins, it was, it was quite, quite, quite the joke, so I did, I did like their funniness, that doesn't mean I still, you know, like them in terms of you know them going against the world and trying to destroy it but you know um next question do you like camp half lord or camp jupiter i think i do like camp jupiter better because i think the fact that you're able to you know retire if you survive um you're able to retire in new rome and you're able to live with family you're actually able to have a chance at a normal life that's probably what i genuinely would enjoy having if i was a demigod I think that the fact that I could go and settle down even after all of my fighting with monsters, I would take that in a, in a blow, 100%. Um, who is my favorite villain? Now, see, I think I would probably have to go between Kronos or Luke. Now, the reasoning behind that is because Kronos... And this kind of goes into the next question that we have as well. Kronos has the ability to manipulate time. And I think that's one of the coolest things anybody could ever have. It's it's cooler than Gaia. If Kronos and Gaia went against each other, 
I have a strong feeling that Kronos will be able to have a tiny bit of an edge over Gaia because he's able to manipulate time. So I just find that insane, and I think that that's just really cool. And then Luke, I think that I like him in terms of his reasoning, in terms of his personality and why he is the way he is. It makes sense in a sense. That doesn't mean you have to turn bad. That means that doesn't mean that, you know, it forces you to turn bad. But it's sometimes his the behavior that he showed throughout, you know, the time we had with him. It shows how much pressure that these demigods have to go through. And it's that Luke could have taken potentially another pathway. He didn't have to take that pathway for evil, but he could have taken a potential another pathway where he just gave up. Well, sorry, I I would not say gave up. Where he would probably say something of potentially taking a break for himself. Maybe staying in Camp Applet for some time. There's stuff like that that he could have potentially done, but do I know, do I, you know, want to interfere with that? Not really, but honestly, I think that the way he was, the only reason why he is my favorite villain is because the way he was able to change in the end, the way he was able to realize what he was doing this entire time was wrong, and why, even though the grief that he went through is justified, it doesn't justify it doesn't it makes sense why he would do that but it's still not right for him to do that if that makes sense but yeah i think luke definitely went through a lot of things and i think that that was definitely one of the harder villains to you know just say oh goodbye you know tough on you (laughs) so i think that yeah he definitely went through some great character development and i think i really it was really fascinating to see how that played out. But yeah. Um, if Next question is, if I was a monster, who would I be? Um, Probably Kronos, as I said in the previous one. He just, the ability to ma- manipulate time is probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen as a superpower. And I think that is just awesome. So yeah, I really enjoyed answering these questions. If you have any other, t- any other questions that you want to ask me regarding the Percy Jackson series, do please let me know and I'd be happy to answer them. Um, Next week, we will continue reading this chapter 11 to chapter 12. I hope you guys stay tuned for that. And until next week, stay safe and stay out of boredom.